But with the momentum of mindfulness when it's developed, it is impossible to deceive yourself. You can't lie to yourself. Mindfulness cuts through it. That takes courage. Tremendous courage just to be here and try to see things as they are. So we develop the forces of purity in our mind, in our everyday life. We develop clarity of intention in our speaking and acting. We also develop mindfulness in practices like the metta practice that you did this afternoon or in other practices for kind of opening the heart, tranquilizing the mind, for calming the mind. So much of our challenge in practice is just agitated restlessness. It takes quite a lot just to calm the mind and calm the body so we can begin to see things clearly. And these practices of tranquilizing the mind, calming the mind, opening the heart, also rely on mindfulness. Coming face to face, for example, in the metta practice, you have the person, either yourself or a benefactor, you have the phrases, you have maybe a feeling around the heart center, you have the meaning of the phrases. And so there's this this collectedness of conditions called metta that we're trying to generate and to pervade towards ourselves or another. And we keep doing that. And we keep doing it. And even though the mind wants to fly off into thinking and judgments and sleepiness and restlessness, we keep, we keep collecting the mind. And we keep being mindful of metta through the connection with the person, the phrase, the meaning, the feeling. And eventually, the mindfulness of metta gets developed. And we feel loving-kindness. Again, to, to really develop metta or any of the other Brahma-viharas or any of the other tranquility meditations takes coming face-to-face with the object of your meditation, the metta or the compassion. Or some of you may have practiced other Tranquility practices, coming face to face with your nimitta, your your jhanic object, if you will. It takes repeated sending and connecting the mind to the object. Not superficial, not a casual. You know, mindfulness just does, just does not develop through casual attention or casual effort. It takes very continuous effort. To be mindful. And that brings us to the development of mindfulness or the application of mindfulness to develop insight, which is primarily what we're doing here. Now, what does vipassana mean? Vipassana is usually translated as insight. But the word insight has different meanings for us in English. You know, there's just kind of like intuition, intuitive insight, there's psychological insight, 
there's sociological insight, there's kind of uh, archetypal insight, and then there's spiritual insight. And vipassana is, I guess I'll call it spiritual insight. Vipassana means seeing beneath the surface of things, seeing the inner characteristic of things. And the inner characteristic that Vipassana sees are three. Impermanence, meaning insight or Vipassana sees all things are impermanent. And you'll, you'll often hear us speaking about noticing the arising and passing away of phenomena or seeing the impermanence or the fleeting nature of experience. And I think later in the retreat, Guy may give a, give a discourse on these three characteristics, these three qualities or these three kinds of insight. And impermanence. The second is what's called dukkha. I'll give a talk on dukkha later. But it's about the, it's noticing how unsatisfying conditions are in our life. And the third characteristic is seeing the impersonality or the conditionality or the quality of how we can't control everything. We can't control ourselves. We can't control our bodies. We can't control our minds. We try to control ourselves. We try to control others. We try to control all kinds of things, but we can't. Things have their own life. Things have their own nature. We are deeply conditioned. And seeing that quality, seeing how conditioned the unfolding of our life is, is an insight. So when we first hear about impermanence and dukkha and anatta characteristic or the impersonality, sometimes we, we, we get kind of caught up in reflecting about how impermanent things are. And you can, you can really dwell on impermanence and you can come to some pretty profound uh, understandings of your life. And if you reflected also on and deeply understood the nature of dukkha, you could also come to some pretty profound understanding of your life. And this kind of reflection could really cause you to kind of reframe your experience or cause you to, to, to choose a different path in life, really. But this kind of reflective knowledge or this kind of reflective uh, understanding is not sufficient to uproot the delusions of our mind. And for that, we need to practice mindfulness. There are three elements required in a moment of mindfulness. We must connect with our experience. We must sustain our attention on the experience. And we must perceive it. Connect, sustain, and perceive. Perceiving the experience means that you recognize it. That you, that you feel it so carefully that you can name it. You know that experience because you recognize it. You have felt 
through the connecting or through the touching and the sustaining your attention on it, you have felt the unique flavor of that moment's experience. And that unique flavor is called the sabhava. Every moment has its own flavor. The rising of the abdomen is different than the falling of the abdomen. The lifting of the leg is very different than the placing of the leg. Have you noticed? To notice the difference requires that you connect, sustain, and recognize what your actual experience is in order to be mindful of it. This sabhava is not reachable. It's not knowable through thinking or through reading a book or through analyzing, but only from connecting, sustaining, and recognizing. And so all of our efforts, really, in developing vipassana insight are directed towards these three qualities. Connecting, sustaining, and recognizing. Initially, say you're observing the breath at the belly that rises and falls when you breathe in and breathe out. And so you sit down and you direct your attention to the belly or the abdomen and to notice breathing. Well, when I first started trying to notice the rising and falling of the abdomen, first I couldn't find it. It's like I knew where my belly was anatomically. I, you know, I could, I could hind, kind of hold in my mind an image of the body and know that the belly was just below the ribs and you know, above the hips. And, you know, and, and so I had this anatomical map that I kind of was watching in my mind as I breathed in and the diaphragm pushed down and the intestines go like that. And, you know, and, it's like, and I would know breathing in and breathing out. And it was a very kind of anatomically correct, breathing in and breathing out. But that's not sabhava. That's a movie. But that's what it takes initially to, to kind of... That's the most we can know initially when we try to pay attention to our belly. Or maybe you're paying attention to the chest. And, you've, and you know that there's two lungs, there's one here, there's one there, there's a heart in between, there's ribs around them. And when you breathe in, they go like a balloon and then they go like that. And, and somehow you can imagine that happening. Because we've all looked at anatomy books and we, or studied anatomy a little bit. And so we, we understand that's what's going on. And that's where we start developing mindfulness. And later we get to, you know, kind of understanding, oh yeah, there's these organs, and, and we can actually feel pushing and pulling and expanding and contracting. And, but it isn't until we get to the, the experience of the sensations, the sensory quality of breathing in and breathing out, that we're actually developing or seeing the sabhava. And then, when you feel the in-breath, and you feel tightness, pressure, hardness. And then you feel the out-breath that starts kind of abruptly. And it's like, oh, there's a releasing and a contracting and a tingling and a pressure and a heaviness and a tightness. Then we're seeing the sabhava. Now, why is that important? It's important to see the sabhava because it cuts through the illusions of anatomy. 
very important, to get in touch with the actual physical sensations that are occurring in the breath, in walking, in movement, whatever it is you're doing. We had a retreat on Maui this uh, past August. And we, we have one every August, but this one was, was unique because the first day of the retreat, I went through the food line and there was a fruit cut up for, to, to, to get at tea time that I had never seen before. A fruit that I'd never seen before. It was, it was kind of round, you know, about the size of a tomato. It had seeds in it like a tomato, but it was purple. I mean, it was purple and it was really juicy and had these seeds in it. I'd never seen it before. And uh, so I picked up a piece and I took it to my table and I started to eat it. And it was really sweet. Not tart, really sweet. Do you know what it, do you know what it tastes like? Do you, know, do you know yet what it tastes like? No, you don't, you don't know what it tastes like. Mm-hmm. How could you know? Well, its name was, it's a dragon fruit. You ever had a dragon fruit? Do you know what a dragon fruit tastes like? No. I could talk from now till the end of time about this fruit, and you would never know what a dragon fruit tastes like until you taste it yourself. Right? That's the same way with your breath. I could talk about it. You could analyze it. You could read every anatomy book. You could, you could read anything you wanted to about it. But until you pay attention, you won't know it. That knowledge that comes through direct personal experience is the first step towards insight. Without that taste, without that intimate, empirical, personal knowledge, Vipassana is not possible. That's why we exhort you to taste the flavor of the in-breath and the out-breath. Now, what's so important about the in-breath and the out-breath? Nothing. You could be sitting here, lifting your hand up and lowering your hand like this and feeling those sensations and develop just as much mindfulness and insight. It's the care, the precision, the intimacy, the connecting, sustaining, and recognition that develops insight. The breath is not particular. It's just one of many or any number of objects that you could pay attention to to develop this quality of attention that's essential for the development or the unfolding of insight. Why is perception, this recognition of the unique flavor so important because it is perception that is the proximate cause for mindfulness. You want to be mindful? There are two causes. A prior moment of mindfulness is a condition for the next moment of mindfulness. And clear perception is a cause for mindfulness. It is important to recognize your experience. Now, we use a few words here. Noting, being aware of, 
sometimes we say labeling or using that soft mental note, that label. Why do we teach you that? Why do we point that out? Like many other instructions you'll hear, it is a tool. It's a technique that is useful in some situations. In the situations when noting is useful. Now, noting, to be able to note something means that you take note of it. When you take note of something, you recognize it. When you recognize something, you see its uniqueness. You know the difference between this in-breath and that out-breath. Or you know the difference between frustration and disappointment. Or you know the difference between you know, the pain in the leg. Is it hard or is it hot? Is it stretching or is it pressure? Is it twisting or is it what? Or when you feel joy, is it joyful or are you just happy? Are you comfortable or are you content or are you complacent? They're very different experiences that can only be known, and you can only know the difference. I mean, the word is different, but there's an experience behind each of those words, and the experience has to be felt. And to feel it, you need to connect with it and sustain your attention on it in order to know it. So this, this taking note of an experience frames it. You know, sometimes you sit down and it's like, God, the mind is screaming and the body's aching. And it's just going all over and the breath is somewhere in there. And it's just a chaotic jumble of stuff. You come in and thoughts of yesterday and plans for tomorrow and what am I supposed to do next? And I just finished my yogi job and I want to go do this. It's like, and you're trying to find the breath? And there's too much happening. But when you pick one thing to pay attention to, the breath, it isolates that experience from everything else. It puts a frame around it so that you can see just that one. It's like looking at a... Uh, uh, Jackson Pollock painting. You know, you walk into a big room, big wall, Jackson Pollock painting, and you look at it and say, my God, what's that? It's a mess. And it's just like somebody's mess. Uh, it's, it just splashes all over the place. But then you start looking, you say, oh, there's a yellow blob, and there's a red streak, and there's a blue smudge, and, there's an... and then you begin to see it. Well, the same is going on in this, in this body-mind complex. It's just a, a cacophony of stuff, sensations and thoughts and feelings and emotions, and my God, it's just overwhelming. Until you sit down and start picking it apart and say, well, there's a breath, there's no breath, there's a sensation, there's a thought, there's a memory, there's a plan, there's an intention, there's a sensation, there's a pain, there's an unpleasant one, I don't like that, there's a judgment. Then you can begin to get a handle on this thing called me. That's what mindfulness does begins to get a handle on this thing called me. And so labeling is the ability to kind of sub-vocalize what it is you're taking note of. If you can label something, you can, you, you, you'll be mindful of it. You'll be taking note of it. And so we, we sometimes ask you, not always, but sometimes ask you to label your experience. To just know in the back of your mind, breathing in, know you're breathing in. When you're breathing out, know you're breathing out. When you're lifting your foot, know you're lifting your foot. There will be an experience to that lifting, you know, like lightness, heaviness, pressure, stretching, trembling, shaking. 
aching. We call that lifting. But there's an experience behind that word, lifting. It's the experience we want to get in touch with, not just the word. It's mindfulness that'll get you in touch with it. The word, you can be saying anything. You can be saying Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola, Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola, as you walk down left, right, left, right. But it's the feeling, it's the getting in touch with the intimacy with your experience that is the doorway to insight. Now what happens when we develop this capacity to be intimate with ourselves, to really know our moment-to-moment experience? I mentioned that it is mindfulness that cuts through the illusions of anatomy, for example. It cuts through the illusions of a sense of self. It cuts through the illusions of being a uh, solid person. It cuts through the illusions of having a personal history. And what happens when we do that is, oh, did you find yourself today sitting, watching or listening to the narrator in your mind? Here I am, Yogi on Retreat, day number two. Wow. Well, I hope today is better than yesterday. Yesterday I was really restless. But today, this morning, is pretty good. Had a pretty good sitting this morning. Ate a little too much for breakfast, so I was a little sleepy. But then, really come around. I had a good interview with Guy today. Yeah, that really was helpful, what he said. And I'm going to try that in my next sitting. <laughs> and here we are, telling ourselves the story of being a yogi on retreat. Now, when you start being mindful, it's going to break up that story. It's going to kind of cut through that story to... to really show you what is going on here. And one of the things that happens is we cut through the illusions of our story. It's as if we, you know, it's really as if we are enchanted by the story in our mind. The story we tell ourselves is sometimes more important than the experience we're having. When we're mindful, it cuts the story. It disillusions us from the story. It disenchants us from the story. We're not enchanted so much by the story we tell ourselves about our life. And one thing that happens when we become disenchanted with someone, or when we become disillusioned with someone, do you ever become disenchanted with someone or disillusioned with someone? It's kind of like, uh, huh. You don't have quite that same fascination anymore. You're not quite so easily kind of impressed and you're not quite so easily entangled with them. You just kind of can let them go. Not out of aversion, but just because you see through it. You're not enchanted anymore. You're not entranced anymore. This is what we do with our life through the development of mindfulness. We cut through the story of our life and we get in touch with our life. The real story of our life. What's actually happening. It is this connecting with the moment that mindfulness is so good at, really, that reveals the truth of our life. 
And the truth of our life can be, as the Buddha said, free of sorrow, of pain, of disappointment, of frustration, all that torments us. If we see it and learn how to endure it and let go. But it's mindfulness. In our daily life, mindfulness in our relationships, mindfulness of our intentions, mindfulness of our moment-to-moment experience that is the key. And what we're doing here is really developing that capacity to be mindful on something simple initially like the breath and stepping. But don't minimize the significance of just paying attention to the breath of just paying attention to the steps. Because the qualities of mind that are developed, mindfulness, stamina, energy, determination, understanding, connecting, sustaining, attention, intention, when these qualities of mind are developed on the breath, they'll be available for anything else that arises in your experience. Difficult or not. Pleasant or unpleasant. Familiar or novel, subtle or gross. Mindfulness has the capacity to be with and recognize everything. In this way, we begin to see our life as it truly is and disentangle ourselves from suffering and the causes of suffering. Don't underestimate the power of mindfulness to bring immediate relief. Whatever you're experiencing that's causing you distress, be mindful of it. Be mindful of it. I'm going to right now. If I can find it. The Buddha said, for the purification of mind, for overcoming sorrow and distress, for the end of pain and sadness, for realizing the liberated mind, one should abide ardent, clearly aware, and mindful. So let's be mindful for a moment. For overcoming sorrow and distress, for the end of pain and sadness, for realizing the liberated mind, one should abide ardent, clearly aware, and mindful.
so thank you for listening to the